We want to welcome our listeners to our fourth Colorado Elders Voice podcast. I'm Carolyn Bowler, along with my co-host, Nancy Jackson, and our guest today is the former U.S. Senator Tim Worth. Tim, I did some cheating. I did some background to make sure I had a list of everything that you've been involved in. So you correct me if I miss something. So besides being a former U.S. Congressman in the second congressional district, you were a United States Senator, you served at the White House Fellow under President Johnson, and this one surprised me, I didn't know this, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Education under the Nixon administration, Under Secretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs in the Clinton administration, Counselor of the State uh, Department of State, President of the uh, United Nations Foundation, and you're currently a co-founder of Keep Our Republic. That's right, co-chairman of that. Co-chair. What did I miss? Well, you missed the fact that I'm married to an incredibly beautiful woman. That's true. Who was deeply involved in all of this in my life, Renworth. And we did everything together uh, for, you know, all the time I've been in politics. We've been married for 57 years. And um, she and I have had this great adventure in Colorado politics together and this great love affair for the state and for each other. And she started EDF. She was one of the key people in the Environmental Defense Fund and started a group with Teresa Hines called Congressional Wives for Soviet Jewelry. And she's been very active in environmental activities and was president of the Winslow Foundation. Right. So so we've been together doing a lot of stuff in Colorado and enjoying every bit of it. So I met Tim in 1985. When the frontier, the original Frontier Airlines was attempting to buy the airline under an ESOP. And you stepped up to take the lead on that for all of the Colorado delegation. And I remember one particular time, it was your wedding anniversary, and you and Rand were in Crested Butte. And Billy Walker called you and said, can you come to Chicago to talk to the United Airline pilots in United? And you did. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, I remember. It always, it was like, this is the commitment that Tim was making to leave Ren and their wedding anniversary to come and help us out to keep Frontier. Yeah, those those were... uh days of trying to save this small airline from the jaws of both venture capitalists who wanted to tear it apart and United Airlines who wanted to put it out of business as a competitor and we wanted to keep it as a as a, uh, as a good business and, and you and Joe Bryan had both worked for uh, uh, Frontier right. and I had a long time, I had a model of a Frontier airplane which um, I didn't know what happened to it and Joe's got it. Joe's got nope. that model. Caroline's you've got, got it. it. Oh, you've got it. Oh, okay, yeah. there we go. It's See, now I do know where it went. Yeah. yeah. See, it was um, it was given to Tim from yeah. the coalition. Yeah. And it still has that little plaque on it. I've had offers to buy it, to sell it, and I'm not selling yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, I remember I, that very well. Yeah. That was very. That was very. Phil Clapp was involved in that. Do you remember him? Right. I loved Phil. Phil yeah, took a lot of time. We tried to get an ESOP going. We tried all kinds of stuff. And yeah. Nothing was successful, but we all had... I still run into various frontier people. Sometimes I, I'll see a life flight attendant on an airplane, and they'll remember. I mean, this has happened to me maybe once every other year or something like that. You know, we tell us, Tim, about your growing up years and your early influences. Well, my, I grew up uh, in a single-parent family. My, my uh, father died when I was three. My mother was a teacher, and um, she was a fabled teacher at the school where she was, and people always came up to me for 30 years thereafter 
saying she was the best teacher we ever had. Well, she was great for us, my brother and me. And uh, I can never remember her saying, do your homework, or never remember her saying whatever it was. I mean, we just knew that we had a job to do at home, and we both uh, worked all the time, had newspaper roots, collected old newspapers, you know, did the did everything to rub a couple of nickels together. And um, so that was a growing up in East, in East Denver. And um, that was, uh, uh, you know, a good background to have because you really value from an early age, you know, what it's like not to have money and what it's like to really scramble. And uh, my brother and I did both. We both uh, were, well, my mother was very clear that uh, education was the premium and that uh, that was just that was just a given. That was not like you know you didn't go out, you didn't go out to play touch football or you didn't go out to whatever it was. You made money so that long term you could afford to school. And we both went away to boarding school in New England, and um, that was a, uh, a great challenge. I went away to I took the train uh, to school in New Hampshire when I was 14. Took the train across the country, you know. I, I, was old, you know? But it was, you know, it was a, it was an enormous challenge, and and uh, really grew up very very quickly. And my brother did the same thing. Went to school in Vermont. And we both ended up in college in Massachusetts. And um, it was uh, a lot. I think a lot of it has to do with mom, my mother as a teacher, and my mother is obviously a very firm individual. You know, who'd obviously had a huge disappointment early in her life with her, her husband dying when, when her children were six and three. Uh, that's got to be very, very hard to do, uh, particularly during World War II. And um, anyway, so that's where it all came from. And my mother was a teacher, my grandmother was a teacher, my brother was a teacher. I taught school. I mean, we all, we all had uh, schools in our system. And when I first got into politics, my strongest constituency right away was was the uh, Jefferson County Education Association. And I'll never forget those wonderful people that I got to know very, very well and admired, you know, what they did. And they were great teachers and it was a wonderful school system. And uh, they were well organized and, uh, you know, not crazy by any means, but just really concerned about the quality of education and what was happening with those kids. So I admired them. And we all got along in a great fashion. So that was kind of the step of my life from that earlier, earlier commitment to schools and being surrounded by education and then getting into politics with being surrounded by education. So what made you go from the education? Because you had a PhD yeah. in education. Yeah, yeah. So what, why did you change from going that education route to going into politics. You know, I thought I was going to be a, end up being a university president, and that was my, that was what I was headed to do. That's what Ren and I both thought. I got married when we were in our late 20s. And um, uh, together we thought we were, I was then working at Stanford, Stanford University, and, uh, you know, they were, they were promoting me and thinking that, you know, I was going to be, one of their future um, key people. And then in, the, in 1968, I got a White House Fellows program. The White House Fellowship had been set up by Lyndon Johnson. And um, that was to bring uh, a handful of young people to the government at the highest level to learn about government and to be there for a year and then to return from whence you came. You know, it's being inners and outers, but that was, that was the, that, that was the idea. So I got very fortunate, I got to want a fellowship. There were, I don't know, 2,000 or 3,000 people applying and 15 of us won. And um, uh, from all across the country. In fact, in my class of 15, Doris Kearns Goodwin was our best buddy. She was, in, she, was in, she was in our class. We were the best pals during the whole program. And, um, uh, you know, she went on then to be very close to Lyndon Johnson. And I had the good fortune of having worked for John Gardner. And John Gardner was the famous head of health education welfare for Lyndon Johnson. It was Lyndon Johnson's favorite Republican. I mean, he was a man of towering intellect and idealism. And so I got hooked up with him, and that was, you know, phenomenal for me. And uh, 
he got me more interested in, in politics. He said to me one time, uh, he said, you know, I've done a lot of interesting things, but the one thing I always wanted to do was to run for public office. I mean, here was this guy who'd done everything, you know, he was everybody's hero in terms of education and, and leadership in the country. And, uh, I'll never, I, I never forgot that. And, uh, so the when we began, as we spent three years in Washington, we got more and more interested in politics and what was going on. And Robert Kennedy got shot during that period of time. And uh, that was very traumatic for us because Kennedy represented so much of what we thought was the right thing to do. And when he got shot, that really said to us, we can't allow this to happen. You know, we got we to gotta do something about this. So we came back to Colorado in 1970 uh, with the express purpose of running for public office. And four years later, I ran for Congress and won in my usual landslide race with, with about three votes to spare. <laughs> but that was the transition. It was really uh, uh, having that experience of being in Washington, working for President Johnson. You know, I'm um, now reading again some of the some of uh, Robert Caro's books on Johnson, and it's just absolutely fascinating. That was our era. You know, we sort of we knew all these people were really in, intrigued with um, what Johnson had done and the Great Society and what was possible and so on. And we believed all of that. It was all on the level. You know, and we were going to go. We were going to go out and yeah. go out and run for Congress ourselves. So you went to Congress in '74. And that was kind of um, Nixon was leaving. Well, it was the Watergate. It was the Watergate Congress. You know, Nixon had been dishonored and had resigned, but there was an enormous scandal, and people, Republicans, didn't vote in '74. They were so disillusioned with what had gone on. So I was running in a district that was, you know, strongly Republican. And, um, and Which district was that? Second district. Now yeah. it's much different yeah. now yeah. than it used to be. Right. Just like, you know, Rappel County is much different. Jefferson County was a thoroughly Republican county, and that was 60% of the district. And uh, so I went to work in it, and, and my mother had remarried, and I had then grown up, spent a lot of time in southern Jefferson County. But uh, we came back to Colorado. I really didn't know anybody except uh, the guy that I looked at in the mirror in the morning when I shaved. You know? <laughs> I, I, we decided we were just going to run. So we did. And um, uh, we caught the f flow of Watergate. I was the classic Watergate baby. I mean, huge upset to have won in that year. And uh, so I, I got elected by a small, very small number of votes. That was the year that uh, Gary Hart first got elected. It was the year that Dick Lamb first got elected. And then it was a very exciting time of young blood coming into the political system. And none of us would have won, I don't think, without Watergate, without the, the vacuum that was left behind by Republicans not voting. And of course, we thought it was our virtue that made us win, but we were just, your, timing is everything in politics. That, you was, know. Don, that was Donald Bratzman. Bratz, 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 we call Bratzman. The guy that I beat was a, was a five-term congressman. He was on the Ways and Means Committee, and his most important piece of legislation was National Salute to Eisenhower Week, <laughs> which we thought was pretty funny. And uh, we thought <laughs> we thought that, I'll never forget, we had, a, we had an event with uh, right toward the end of the campaign. He didn't take seriously, but I was running against him. And uh, we, organized, we were very well organized, particularly in southern Jefferson County, where I'd grown up and where I'd lived a lot for a lot, a lot of time. And I had a lot of cousins down there. And there was a big event at Bear Creek High School. You know, Bear Creek is the yeah. big regional high school on, on, uh, on, uh, on Hampton and about Kipling. Great big school. And we were going to have a rally, and I'd debate, and, and Donald Brotsman was supposed to show up. Well, he didn't deign to get there on time, so... It was filled with worth volunteers. The whole and my cousins had done this just incredible job. And uh, uh, he came in and he faced was faced with this sea of worth shirts and huge cheers when I said anything. And he must have thought this was he thought of all places Southern Jefferson County is going to be his strongest home base. Mm -hmm. And there he was. This was <laughs> what was going on here. And uh, uh, that was just a, that was right toward the end of the campaign, uh, and we won by a very very small margin, and they just had great momentum going into 
into the election in 1974, fall of 1974. I'll never forget it. It was really incredible. Great experience. What's the difference when you went in in 74 and what you see today? Well, there was a, an enormous amount of collegiality then. I mean, uh, the, the Cong being in the Congress was a little bit like being a, being a, 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 a cowboy in a, on, a, on a, uh, a posse. And one day you'd posse up and you'd go after, you know, one issue over the hills over here. And the next day, you'd posse up with a different group of people, Republicans and Democrats, and go after, say, healthcare issue over here. It was incredible. I mean, it was enthusiastic, and people were a lot young. I think there were, you know, when I was elected, there were 94 of us who were elected for the first time, if you can imagine. So it was a sea of lots of eager, you know, very committed, very idealistic people. And uh, the Republicans were great, largely great to work with. You know, and they, we all had a wonderful time together, and uh, it was, those were great times. I think now um, uh, it's so difficult for the Congress, to, for the, the House to organize itself because they are centralized, the, the control is centralized. Newt Gingrich effectively destroyed the House of Representatives by getting rid of all of the democracy nature of the House, all of the committees, all the subcommittees, all the special caucuses, all the things that had gotten real political and intellectual life into the House of Representatives and a lot of collegiality into the House of Representatives. Ginrich killed all of that and centralized all the power in his office. Somebody someday is going to write you know, a good book about how Ginrich really destroyed much of democracy in America. It's just, it's, it was really, the, the guy was a nut, and, uh, but a very effective one. And, you know, he knew how to use power and use, use language and so on. But that was a big difference. And there, now there's no, there's very little of this sense of collegiality. It's very hard for people to work together. The committees are all drawn in a different way. The, the organization is not, Tip was a great speaker, Tip O'Neill. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, for example, to give you an example of how different it was, um, um, when, when Citizens United got decided by the court and uh, fundraising became very, very important for people, much more than it had been. The question was, how are people going to be able to do all of this fundraising and go to home in their own districts and be in the Congress at the same time? And uh, so TIP devised this schedule whereby we'd be, we were expected to be in Congress three weeks a year, three weeks a month, and the extra, the fourth week was yours. You could do anything you wanted. You could go home. You could raise money. You could go on vacation. Whatever you wanted to do, that was your week. But you were expected to be there the other three weeks. Well, the result of that was, people were there, and uh, people had their kids in Washington, had their kids in school. You had dinner with your Republicans. You all had dinner together. I can remember any number of dinners, having dinners with a, in a table in, in the house restaurant with. You know, half Republicans and half Democrats, and they were—we were all there. Had to be there, and had—that was the idea. And Tip was really committed to people getting to know each other and working together, and so on. And, and it worked. I thought worked pretty well. Those were great days of legislation, and then, uh, and it all got murdered by, uh, really killed by, by Gin, which was which was the first of this sort of nasty, uh, you know, nasty, nasty partisanship and. And using accusing people of things, you know, there was never a time when you were accused people of bad faith. And Ginrich was always accusing people of bad faith. God, tell me he's a traitor. Tell him he's a he's 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 a scum. He told me, you know, use this terrible language in talking to people, and that spills over to what that spills over to a lot of other people. You know, leadership is important. And you didn't have cell phones. And there weren't any cell phones, and there weren't there, and that's another, of course, the world's without these platforms, these internet platforms, which have just changed the nature of, of governing and politics and made it even harder. So 1986, you make the decision to run for U.S. Senate, because Gary Hart was running for her. Gary decided he wanted to be president. president. So you ran in 86. You started the Worth Washington Seminar. Ran in 86, had a landslide victory of 
Let me see. I've got, I got 49.8% of the vote. Uh, Ken Kramer, whoever I thought I was going to, was going to just clobber, was got this hardcore conservative vote from from the Republicans in Car Springs. I got 49.8. He got 49.4. And the other four or six tenths were four marginal candidates, all conservatives, who were on the ballot. And they got just enough votes. If they had not been on the ballot, then questionably, if they'd voted, they would have voted for Kramer, and I never would have won. But Bob Ewigan, who was uh, then, remember Ewigan, who was, he was a great writer for the, for the Denver Post. He always thought it was because at the end of the campaign we did these wonderful positive uh, 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 commercials, you know, that were, didn't have anything to do with substance. They were all about, you know, truth, light, and the American way. And Iwigan uh, always said at the end of it, he said at the end of that campaign, he said, you know, you really won my new minute you changed to, to run those last ads, you won going away. Going away was 49.8% of the vote. Yeah. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I still have the picture that they Denver Post took in the in the campaign office. Do you remember that? Uh, anyway, that's oh, oh, I know the one of everybody sitting around. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, it was Rocky Mountain News had a headline. Well, Rocky. Yeah. yeah, the Rocky, the old Rocky. So nine, and then Worth Washington Seminar. Yeah. yeah. I loved those. Yeah. Because you would bring in. We were bringing, we had about 300 people would come every year from to these seminars, and um, they'd go on for three days, and Joe Bryant was the head honcho for all of these, and that's what she did all year long, was to organize the seminars and transportation and food and all that for all these people that came, and we had a fabulous cross-section of people all the way from, you know, the, the Republican Secretary of Defense to George W. Bush when he was, when he's, you know, not, not he was then sort of the wayward son of the president. And I mean, just had a whole variety of people would come and speak and people loved it. They just loved it. And they were great. I always wish Skaggs had picked it up and ran it, but they got very complicated. They got very complicated. We, we tried to get him to yeah. pick that. Be his own man, that was okay. Yeah. After one term in the Senate, you decided not to run. That's right. Why? I, I, was, I was just sick and tired of raising money. I'd, I'd, six very close House races and then one very close Senate race. And I spent a huge amount of time raising money. And I was just tired of it. And then I was tired of what that was doing to me and what, to that, you know, I was meeting with a lot of people I didn't really want to, you know, I didn't want to advance their agendas, really. Mm -hmm. And that's what you end up doing. I was just sick of it. And uh, I suddenly realized going into re-election, we were very well organized and raised a lot of money for a re-election campaign. And Ren and I were talking with our good friend Carter Eskew, who had later ran a lot of Gore's politics for him, but Carter was a big pal of ours. And I can remember sitting around with him one afternoon, and we just looked at each other, Ren and I looked at each other and I said, well, we don't have to do this again. You know, there was no obligation to do it again. You know, we don't owe anything to anybody. We owe it to people who elected us the first time around. But, uh, you know, politics goes on. It's a great decision. It was the right decision to make. Oh, then I, you know, I helped to organize the Clinton-Gore campaign in, um, in uh, 92. And uh, we organized a lot of the West for Clinton-Gore and, uh, and um, uh, Ellen Marshall. Do you remember Ellen Marshall? Ellen was the point person for organizing young groups all across the country for Clinton-Gore. So we spent a lot of time on that campaign. And then when, um, when Clinton got elected, the assumption was I was going to be uh, the energy secretary. That was the consensus of the pundit, Washington punditry, and I was ready to go. Well, that wasn't the consensus of the energy community. They didn't think this was really good because I was a little bit too radical for this for them. So they managed, I think, to pretty much submarine that candidacy. And uh, so uh, instead of naming me in one surprise, I'd been down in Little Rock uh, talking to Clinton, and um, Gore was in Tennessee uh, doing an event there, and we were supposed to meet back in Washington. 
and uh, we assumed that I was down in in in, um, in uh, Little Rock with Clinton to lock in the 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 cabinet office, and Gore was setting it up in Tennessee. We met back in Washington. We both got off an airplane at National Airport at about the same time and learned that Clinton had named a, an energy executive from um, Minnesota to be the Secretary of Energy. Who knew we'd ever heard of her for her? And uh, uh, <laughs> I hate to say it, but one wag said she had she had beautiful legs. I mean, I, no, she was she was a minority candidate. She was she was she was a, she was a black woman, and uh, she became Secretary of Energy. Hazel O'Leary, totally totally forgettable individual. Well, it was pretty surprising to us. And I figured I got other things to do. It's all right. But then Clinton called and asked me if I would take on this job at the State Department. They were reorganizing a lot of the State Department and doing a lot of things related to the environment and population and, and human rights. And would I undertake this assignment? And I said, sure. So I did that for five and a half years, and that was very, very interesting. A whole new world for me of dealing with the UN and dealing with the State Department. And oh my goodness, you know, that was, I thought I knew something coming out of the Congress. I didn't know anything. You know, uh, you know I knew how to make my way through the congressional halls and how to deal with legislative cycles and debates on the floor and so on, but I, I couldn't have told you about much of anything, you know, when I, as I found out. It was fascinating. And then your buddy, Ted Turner. Yeah, yeah. I did that for five and a half years and got crosswise with um, um, a lot of the people in the, in the Clinton administration over climate change. They were not very eager to do very much about climate change and didn't want to make the tough decisions. And we had a lot of, um, uh, a lot of battles about that. And I was getting pretty sore about it because we'd really spent a lot of time and did a lot of the homework for it and hit a lot of hearings and so on. And they were just feathering their sails completely. I mean, they didn't want to make a commitment, the Clinton people. And so uh, that became clearer and clearer. And um, it was one fatal kind of three-day period, of interesting three-day period of time where I'd organized this big climate conference at the White House. And uh, Turner and Ted Turner, and he was then married to Jane Fonda, and Ren and I were sitting in the front row of this of, of this uh, meeting at the White House, and it was a really high-powered, very senior people coming and talking about climate change. And um, uh, it was supposed to go until like 6:30 or something like that, but as usual in Clinton time, it ran late and ran late. So Ted and Jane and Ren went off to this hotel, and I told them we'll meet you there for dinner. I had to stay while until the thing was over. So when it was over about 7.30, probably 45 minutes later, maybe an hour later. And uh, this was the old Four Seasons Hotel in Georgetown where they were. Georgetown Four Seasons dining room was a great big dining room. And Ted and Jane and Ren were sitting in the far back corner. And of course, everybody in the room was watching Ted and Jane, you know, yeah. you know keeping their eye on everything that they were doing. So they were sitting back there. And, uh, you know, I came in the door over here in this corner. As I started across the room, Ted saw me and he said, Hey, Worth, you want to run this big foundation for me? <laughs> I mean, so everybody knew. Oh. So that's how I got, that's what, I'd known Ted for a long time. But that's how I got involved, <laughs> was doing classic Ted Turner, you know, doing this. He just decided that's what he wanted to do. He, of course, he'd done his homework pretty carefully, and as I later found out, but... Um, so that's how I got involved with the UN Foundation, which Ted was just starting, with a billion-dollar commitment to the UN. I'm wondering if you think that there has been any progress in the climate change discussion. Oh, sure. Sure, not fast enough, but there's been a lot of progress on the climate, a lot. And uh, you know, we've we've moved a long way. Just um, there was a long, much longer way to go. Yeah. So that's a way of saying. Um, the fossil fuel industry is still in control. Mm -hmm. You know, they're still making sure that uh, nothing uh, of note's going to happen. Going to happen. The basic fact of the matter is we have to stop putting carbon up in the atmosphere. Period. It's not complicated. You know, it's not. Blah, 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 blah. It's we got to stop putting carbon in the atmosphere because that's what's killing us. Right. 
Simple fact, that's what's killing us. So how do we stop putting carbon in the atmosphere when the most powerful political lobby in the history of the world wants to put more into the atmosphere and has bought, you know, lots and lots and lots of politicians and lots of political outcomes. So it's going to be tough to get done what we have to get done. Um, um, am I gloomy about it? No. I mean, you got to keep hammering away. Maybe something will break at some point. These guys are really horrible. They're, I mean, they're just horrible. And they're like, I think the greed factor is so overwhelming. Yes. Just so overwhelming. Yes. And uh, anyway, I spent I spent a long time on the climate issue from the time that I was in, early in the Senate. Well, we uh, appreciate your references. Uh, well, I keep working at it. Got to keep working at it. Can't you can't make stop because uh, it's too important and too dangerous. And I remember you talking about the environment and the population <coughs> and how population was really. That's the other issue, yeah. yeah. The other issue is the getting to a point of sustainable population. Point, we have too many people on the earth, on the earth. That's all there is to it. There are just too many people, and there we don't have enough resources for this, and you don't have enough resources, particularly if you expect everybody in the world's going to live at a standard of living like ours. Where's all that going to come from? And that's fossil fuel based too. So the more we can do as rapidly as possible to provide family planning and family planning information to everybody in the world who wants it, the better off we're going to be. But that's also controversial now, too, because a lot of people decide, oh, you can't do it, it's too controversial. It's too controversial. Well, I made my contribution to zero population growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, CPG. Yeah, and you say that today and people look at you like, what's that? Yeah, exactly. CPG. Exactly. It's got a different name, actually. I heard about today at lunch, it's got a different name now. What is it? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. Mm. But that was a, that was, it's just been a, it's a tough area. So you're still involved with the, with the, the, um, I'm still on the, I'm still on the board of the, of the, of Turner's UN Foundation. I was president for 10 years. And I was, I've been on the board and I'm sort of fading out of that. I mean, that's, for the next generation of people to do. Do you remember Kathy Calvin, Kathy Bushkin? She was Gary Hart's breast person. She, but I don't think I knew her. Yeah. Very skilled and very good. She came in after me as president of the UN Foundation. I wanted somebody there who was pretty political because we had to work, work, worry about a lot of things related to the Congress. And she did a good job, and now there's another woman that's just, who was a Rhodes Scholar. Hang on, shut this. So now, you're the co-chair of Keep Our Republic. Yeah. And I just find this fascinating. Your your conversation at the at Fraser Meadows on Sunday. Did you like that? Yeah. It was interesting, especially your ending comment when everybody chuckled. You gave us all this news and then it was have a nice day. Yeah. So why don't you tell these two about tell the whole group about what is Keep Our Republic and what's the goal? Yeah, we started a, a group of us, about oh, six or eight of us who had been in pretty high-level positions in the government, um, had known each other and got together in early 2020, convinced that um, Donald Trump would do everything he could to stay in office, that he wasn't going to leave office. And he didn't want to um, live with the moniker of loser. And that uh, we were right. We blew the whistle on this. We did a whole lot of work with the Speaker's office, the Biden campaign, others to say, you watch out, this is what's going to happen. And, and um, we were pretty much ridiculed early on by saying, oh, you're, where? You're, 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 you're just alarmist and so on. Well, we were right. Not only right, we were right, more right than we knew. Then January 6th came about, and we were, it was 100% correct, and we got into the incredible mess that we're in now. Um, we kept ourselves going and organized ourselves into a group called Keep Our Republic, which is um, uh, taken off from Ben Franklin at the end of the Constitutional Convention when he was asked, what did you create? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. 
and that's why we call ourselves Keep Our Republic. We are focused in particular on what happens after Election Day. Most people in politics and civics and so on are focused on getting out registration, getting out the vote, raising money for the election, all the time up to an election. Very few spend any time thinking about what happens after the election. Mm -hmm. Who counts the votes? How do they get certified? Where do they go afterward? What do you do with these votes? Who makes the decision? All of this is the period of time from election day until the time that the Congress comes together to declare our, our winner in uh, January, which was the time of the Great Explosion. But nobody knows, people know very, very little about this period of time. And that's the period of time that we're focused on in particular, being aware of the fact that there are lots and lots of areas for mischief in this when, during this period of time. And that Bannon and company know very well about this, and they're training a lot of people to learn how to disrupt the counting of these votes, to learn how to disrupt what states are doing. We know that it's happening, you know, in all, all of the so-called swing states. You know, the ones that uh, are not are not Republic, are not Democratic, are those swing states: Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, and uh, Nevada. Those are the swing states. And the Republicans are doing everything that they can do to lay the groundwork for disrupting the count in those states. Well, if those states can't count the vote, then it gets complicated. If they can't count the vote, they can't report the vote as they're required to do by the middle of September, mid-middle of December. Each state has to decide what its vote is and what its electoral votes are going to be. In other words, who's won the electoral votes in that state? <clears throat> They're all supposed to come together on what's called Safe Harbor Day, Safe Harbor Day, which is about the 12th or 15th of December. At which point, we're supposed to everybody's supposed to agree, have agreed where the electoral votes are, who won them, so on. But if a state has so much disruption that it can't come to a conclusion, what happens? For example, Pennsylvania has 19 electoral votes. The former governor of Pennsylvania, a good friend of mine who's working with us to, in Pennsylvania, I asked him what keeps him up at night, and he said, not being able to count the vote after the election. He said there are enough counties in Pennsylvania that are taken over by, you know, other elements, and um, that they would disrupt the counting in their areas so that the state cannot come to a final conclusion as to what the vote in Pennsylvania is. That will continue to get challenged, and by the time you get to Safe Harbor Day in December, there's no vote from Pennsylvania. Well, if that happens in a few other states, which Biden won by little tiny margins, let's remember, very small margin in Arizona, very small margin in Wisconsin. If that happens in those states, which we think is going on, then what happens? I mean, you can't get to 270 electoral votes, which is what you need to win the, win the election. You can't get up, to, you can't count to 270. And the Republicans can't count to 270 either, because they're... So then what happens? Then under the 12th Amendment, uh, we go through a, a process where the election then goes to the House of Representatives. And the House of Representatives votes not on a, on a congressional district, but on a state-by-state -state basis. Each state has the same number, each, has, each state has the same vote, Wyoming, has the same vote as California, has the same vote as Florida. So a a, the delegation, it votes by delegation. And currently, the current votes um, by delegation are, uh, there are 28 states that are, have Republican-controlled congressional delegations, and 22, it's 26 to 22 right now, that have Democratic. So if this goes to the 12th Amendment process, the Republicans win, by what the Constitution says happens when you can't determine these electoral votes. And if that happens, then you have uh, the Republicans electing the, the, the president, and that means Donald Trump comes again. So it's a really scary proposition, and if you add on top of that, what happens if no labels people get going, mm -hmm. and there are enough votes taken away from Democrats in these swing states, so that Trump wins some of those swing states, that's very dangerous. These no-labels people aren't 
good, good, in my opinion, good-willed idealists. You know, they're for the most part very conservative, oil, oil-dominated individuals, putting a lot of money into this to make sure that uh, that there are votes that votes get pulled away from Biden. Add add um, the Bobby Kennedy phenomenon, which is another you know, another uh, uh, curveball thrown into the whole mix. And finally, the Green Party vote and the, the professor from Princeton who's running, who's going to pick up a lot of Jill, what's her name's vote from there. So we're, we've got challenges coming at us, not only through the process of the votes being counted, but challenges coming at us at the, from the election point of view, from no labels, the Green Party candidate and Bobby Kennedy. So it's going to be a very rocky and dangerous time. As I said at the end of the meeting that Caroline was at, I said to everybody after I'd laid this all out to him, I said, have a nice day. Because it's so brutal. what are you all doing about this? Well, we're, and we're what organized. And what <clears throat> Well, it doesn't make a difference in Colorado, because Colorado, you know what Colorado's vote's going to be. And that's true of almost all the states, except the swing states. So we're focused on three swing states. We're focused on Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. We have very good organizations going in each of those three states uh, to really work on all of the things that could happen in the certification of those votes in those three states. So organizations, for example, in seven areas in Pennsylvania, which are the seven areas that are the most likely uh, <coughs> to be of trouble, as the governor said, most likely to cause trouble at the polls. So we're really well organized in those seven areas. And, we're, and the, the, uh, the chairman of our group in Pennsylvania is a former Republican governor with a lot of you know, bar, bar associations and chambers of commerce and so on engaged in, in doing everything possible to make sure that this kind of mischief can't occur at the polls, we hope. Uh, in Wisconsin, we have an incredible woman who's uh, a hardcore Republican and strong anti-Trumper who's running our, our, our organization in, in, in Wisconsin. She is unbelievable. And she's so chopped. She hates what these people are doing, what they're doing to this society, what they're doing to our democracy. And she's, she's our, our lead organizer in Wisconsin doing a similar sort of thing. And then Michigan's a little easier because uh, the governor there is, is Gov uh, Gretchen Whitmer. And, uh, the, and the, um, the Democrats have taken over both houses and every statewide office in, in Michigan. So I think Michigan's, even though there'll be, there's some nutcases up there, you know, that try to, Gretchen, try to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer and so on. There's some really crazies up there in the woods. That's where the mad bomber was hanging out in the woods of Michigan. So there's some nutcases. So that's a little bit better. If we, we, we can't afford to lose Pennsylvania and we can't afford to lose Wisconsin. Now, what happens in Arizona, the people, in, a lot of people in Arizona want our particular capability to go to Arizona, too, to help them. And uh, we're trying right now to raise the money, too. Uh, and that's why I spend a lot of time raising the money so that we have the bandwidth to go to, to Arizona and, uh, and into North Carolina and maybe Georgia. So that's what we're doing about it. Thank you. That's really important work. It is. It's terrible. It's, it's brutal. It's brutal. It's going to be. A, uh, we'll be lucky if we get through this next election and have an election. Uh, I mean, it's, it's that it's that tenuous, and nobody knows. A lot of people think, "Oh, it's just fine now. We did well in the 2022 election. You know, we didn't lo do. We barely lost the House. You know, we didn't lose a lot of this. Didn't lose the Senate. It looks good. We're doing fine. No, we're not." So I saw today, I think it was, that the No Labels group has been looking at Mansion. Yeah. Which... Nothing we can do about it. No. I mean, he might feel that this is what he has to do because he can't win in West Virginia. I have no idea. What, I don't know Joe Mansion. I don't know what he thinks he might be able to do. I mean... Um, um, with a former senator from Connecticut, Joe Lieberman is all involved with no labels. Hmm. That's figured. Yeah, it's exactly Good right. figures. It's just bad news. Just bad. Guys into it for this massive ego trip, you know, just massive ego trip, and they're getting all this attention now, even though they're totally irrelevant. They're getting all this attention. 
And then, you know, Manchin's a serious guy because he's a member of the United States Senate and he holds a key vote, he holds a key vote, and he, a lot of people listen to him. And, well, I would think in Arizona you might have an issue too because you've got the current senator who is now unaffiliated. Yeah, she's not, she's not good news. But. No, she's not. And then you got Gallegos that's running for her seat. Yeah. And there's some concern about whether or not he's able to do that and pull it off. And you, it, right. It's complicated. Arizona is a different different set of issues and we, we've, we've, we've got the Senate senators in Pennsylvania and the governor in Pennsylvania and the state house in Pennsylvania and the Republicans have a narrow narrow edge in the state Senate in Pennsylvania so you know in terms institutionally Pennsylvania appears to be you know um, potentially okay although it's got all of this underlying problems it's always said that in between Pittsburgh and, and uh, Philadelphia, it's Alabama. You know, it's a very conservative yes. state. Uh, so that's, you know, and then in, in, um, in uh, uh, Wisconsin, you know, they had this good vote on the Supreme Court uh, membership and, and, and that made a big difference in terms of what they could do. Plus Governor Evers is a good, really good guy terrible state legislature up there in terms of this kind of this set of issues making life extremely difficult so that's touch and go that's 10 electoral votes Pennsylvania is 19 Michigan I think it's 14 or 15 and that should be pretty solid and we don't know what's going to happen you know with the, what's happening in you know North Carolina we don't we just don't have the bandwidth right now to, to be as aggressive as we'd like to be and but we're working on raising the money right now so that's what we're doing. Have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, really, really. Well, it's going to keep you off the streets for a while. It does that. Yeah. 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 So, Tim, do you have anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to put on our recording? Well, that's an, we, I think we've done a, we've done a lot of good stuff. I mean, there's two things that uh, I'm I'm asked all the time. Do I wish I was there? And the answer is no. Uh, you glad you did it? I would say absolutely. It was the most incredible experience I've ever had. Was running for public office. How much you learn about yourself. How much you learn about the world in which you live. You know the amount of detail that you you pick up on it, and uh, it's just terribly, terribly important. And largely, the people who are in public office are good people. You know, you get them one on one. You know, they didn't get there because they're not competent. They got there for reasons. So they worked hard, you know, and they had, they had a particular set of goals and so on. You may not agree with them, but they're, for the most part, they're people of very good will, and it's a matter of now figuring out how to organize them. And that's the, the great disappointment, is how these institutions have gotten so polarized. And again, I go back to Ginrich, who really started this in the worst possible way, you know, that was already out there, the the fields were already had already been seated, but he really took advantage of it and, and destroyed the House of Representatives. Senate's always a problem because of the filibuster, and it's very close in the Senate, but it's been that way forever. You know, that's not different. You know, what's different is the House of Representatives, you know, is no longer the people's house. It just it just isn't. You know, and it's now it's now the victim of all the problems we see in terms of uh, uh, fundraising and in terms of redistricting, draw, drawn lines and so on, and layer onto that this very very conservative Supreme Court, and you've got uh, you've got a really nasty soup. So how we get through this? Well, we got to take them one at a time, and um, to get through this next election. I think the Republicans. Have, you know, I've I've said before that the leadership of the authoritarians knows that they have to win. Because if they don't win, they're going to jail because they've done so many illegal things. So it's win or go to jail for Trump and company. And, uh, you know, that, that, so they, they're, they're really working this because they know this is serious. And they probably, if they win, they'll go after putting a bunch of us in jail, too. I mean, that, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Anyway, it's a hell of a challenge, and, and uh, life is extraordinarily interesting, and this, and this is terribly important. What we're doing is terribly, terribly important. 
So I'm just wondering if you're, you're feeling optimistic or pessimistic or... Well, I don't think I ever could say one is optimistic or pessimistic. I mean, that doesn't really mean anything. I think you got to have a realistic view of what the world is <clears throat> and understand that there are challenges that come along and some are going to be beaten and some aren't going to be beaten and, and you work your way through them one at, one at a time. And uh, it doesn't make any difference whether you say, well, I'm optimistic. That doesn't really mean anything, you know? I mean, I'm, oh, yeah, I'm optimistic, ah, you know, oh, you know, that's, a, or I'm pessimistic, gloom, 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 gloom. That doesn't get you anywhere. I'm an institution, I'm an institution person, and I want to see what can we do to help each of these institutions get better and do everything possible to save our republic. No kumbaya, kumbaya doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. It's very nice, it's very sweet, you know, but <laughs> it's got to be, this is, a, this is a tough game. It's a tough business, and, and, uh, uh, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, you know? Well, I'm, I'm sure that we, we I, I think I can speak for us anyway, that we really appreciate all that you have done. Well, our, delighted to be with you today. For right. democracy and for yeah. the Republic. And, you know, so many people, maybe they know your name, but they don't know, and I certainly didn't know, half of what you've done a lot of which was behind the scenes yeah. and continues to be. This good organization called Keep Our Republic and uh, an excellent website, which is keepourrepublic.org, all one word, keepourrepublic.org. People can get on there and sort of read a lot of the articles that we've written and see who some of the players are that are involved and what we think some of the issues are. And it's an overall, it's a, it's a civic education website, which is, uh, we think, somewhat interesting. Websites, for the most part, are... <laughs> pretty, you know, some are better than others, and this is a pretty good one. Thanks for coming up. Thank you. Thank you. You're nice to be here. Thank you very much. Um, we want to thank you for the interview. Um, again, it's been an honor, sir. Um, those who are listening, uh, if you want to know, if you want to share this podcast with others, it can be heard on Spotify, on Stitcher, or on Apple Podcasts. And for our listeners, if you know of someone who you think would be um, interesting, someone who in your community that uh, you would like us to interview, uh, please let us know. You can contact me at drnan at gmail.com. That's dr.nan, N-A-N-N, at gmail.com. Um, we're really interested in people who have contributed to their communities um, to make us a healthier, more equitable, more democratic, and more beautiful than uh, th that we can all live in together. So um, again, if you have any comments or suggestions for us, please email us. And now from Carolyn Bowler, my co-host, Dan Jackson, our sound engineer, and for me, Nancy Jackson, be safe, be healthy, and age well. <laughs> <laughs>